Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church in Somerset, Kentucky. Please make sure to visit us online at phbcsomerset.com. Tonight we're going to talk about the woman and the scarlet beast. Uh, That's what my heading is in my Bible, and I thought, well, let's just stick with that. Um, We're going to talk about the worldly system uh, that we all live under and in. Um, Before we start, I found a quote. Um, A guy was talking about, for a thousand years, the Christian thinker with the greatest influence was Augustine. Uh, His longest book was called The City of God. And it interpreted history as the story of two cities, the struggle between those who depend on God and those who rely on themselves. And I thought, I want to start out with that because in the, in the big scheme of things, if you were to just sit down tonight and read from Revelation 17 to the, the end of the book, you know, 17 through chapters 22, uh, which you could easily do, uh, you will find that uh, Revelation kind of leads us as we go through the book to two different cities. Uh, one is uh, Babylon the Great, and the other one is the New Jerusalem. Uh, Babylon the Great is portrayed as a prostitute. You will see that tonight in chapter 17. And then a little later in the book, you'll eventually see the New Jerusalem. Uh, coming down out of heaven to earth from God to man, and his dwelling is with them. And that'll be the good part. Uh, The new Jerusalem is portrayed as the bride of the Lamb. And so two cities, both uh, portrayed as women, one as a bride, the other as a prostitute. Um, You see this as you go through Um, the book of Revelation, particularly the last few uh, final chapters. So let's look at that tonight. Um, Before we start looking at Babylon the Great, um, here in chapter 17, I wanted to jog your memory for a little bit. Because when Babylon pops up in this chapter, I want you to realize that it's, it's been mentioned already in the book of Revelation. For example, in Revelation 14, verse 8, if you'll just go there for a moment, in Revelation 14, verse 8, uh, there are three angels that make proclamations, and the second one in Revelation 14, verse 8, it says, and another, a second angel followed, saying, it has fallen, Babylon the great has fallen, she made all the nations drink the wine of her sexual immorality, which brings wrath. And you're going to see that theme play out tonight. You're going to see Babylon the Great. You're going to see how she's going to fall. You're going to see how she kind of ruled the world. All the nations led them astray through immorality, and, and that that is what leads to God's wrath. All right? Um, the second time you see Babylon the Great mentioned is uh, last week in uh, Revelation 16. You remember the seven bowls uh, of wrath or seven bowls of plagues that are poured out to complete God's wrath and judgment of the world. When the seventh bowl is poured out, in verse 19 we read, the great city split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered in God's presence. He gave her the cup filled with the wine of his fierce anger. And so again... 
you're seeing Babylon the Great mentioned, and it's been mentioned twice, and then we get to chapter 17 tonight, and Babylon the Great is mentioned again. I like what Michael uh, Q. Kendall says about Babylon the Great. He says, Babylon the Great evokes the Old Testament's metaphor of an ungodly city. It refers to Rome for John's original audience, and ultimately it symbolizes unredeemed humanity and the evil worldwide system that's opposed to God and His people and will be eternally judged at the end of history. So that's what we mean when we talk about Babylon the Great. Well, when you read uh, Revelation 17, the first thing we're introduced to, uh, first thing we're introduced to is a prostitute and a beast. Look, if you will, in Revelation 17, we'll read the first couple verses. Then one of the seven angels, now he says one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls. So in, in the previous chapter that we looked at last week, you had seven angels that had seven bowls of plagues or seven bowls of wrath. One of those angels, okay, who had the seven bowls came and spoke with John. And here's what the angel said, Come, I will show you the judgment of the notorious prostitute who is seated on many waters. The kings of the earth committed sexual immorality with her, and those who live on the earth became drunk on the wine of her sexual immorality. And then he carried me away in the spirit to a wilderness. And so that's how this starts. Now notice the setting. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls is the one that's introducing this vision to John. Notice he says, I'm going to show you something. I'm going to show you um, the judgment of this awful prostitute. And then he's carried away in the spirit to the wilderness. Now keep in mind, that's happened before too. Remember in Revelation 4 verse 1 when uh, um, John is caught up into heaven and he sees the, the vision around the throne. And I think there's another time it happens. So, And you see that when you read the book of Ezekiel. The Spirit of God will will take the prophet or the servant and you know kind of transport him somewhere and say, look at this, and show him a vision. And that's what's uh, happening here. He carried him away in the spirit to the wilderness. And then we have a description of this prostitute. Beginning there in verse 3, he carried me away in the spirit to the wilderness. And here's what he saw. I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, jewels, and pearls. She had a golden cup in her hand filled with everything detestable and with the impurities of her prostitution. On her forehead was written a name, a mystery. Okay? A mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the detestable things of the earth, then I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. So, I mean, this sight kind of took his breath away. I mean, on one hand, this woman is likely attractive because she is dressed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, jewels, and pearls, and has a golden cup. And if you just do a, a glance, she's all you know decked out. She's dressed to the nines, you might say. But then 
as he looks closer, she's riding a beast covered with blasphemous names. And then he looks closer and he notices on her forehead is written a name, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the detestable things of the earth. And then he sees that she's drunk. And then he sees that she's drunk with the blood of the saints. And I think it just kind of overwhelmed him. He is greatly astonished. Now, let's first of all talk briefly about this beast. Does it sound familiar? Because it's, it should. She is sitting on a beast, a scarlet beast, covered with blasphemous names. And this beast has seven heads and ten horns. Um, that should remind you of Revelation 13. It matches the features of the beast in Revelation 13, verses 1 through 8. In a word, this prostitute and the beast are cooperating. They're, they're working together. Uh, as, as one guy says, the phrase Babylon the Great appears in Revelation four times. We've looked at three of them, chapter 14, 16, right here in verse 5. And it's mentioned again next week in chapter 18 when we get to that. Now, as a code name for a city, it was inspired by the 6th century B.C. city of Babylon. Babylon at that time was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And uh, just as ancient Babylon murdered the Old Testament people of God, uh, because in their day they demolished Jerusalem and the kingdom of Judah in 586 B.C., so the new Babylon will murder, murder the people of God. Uh, the form of Babylon present in the first century was certainly the city of Rome as early as uh, Peter's writing. Remember, Peter wrote two letters. In 1 Peter 5, 13, he, uh, he basically has a code name for Rome, and it's Babylon. Uh, the great prostitute city John envisioned goes beyond Rome. It looks to the end of history and sees a wicked city that murders uh, followers of Christ, the Lamb of God. Now, early Christian readers would likely understand that whenever they're threatened, whenever their lives are at risk, uh, that they were in reality facing this bloodthirsty mother of all prostitutes that God's one day is going to judge. And so that's, that's what you see there. Now we'll come back to the... Uh, other stuff in a minute, but let's keep reading. So then you have the identity of the prostitute. Uh, look, if you will, um, in verse 7. Then the angel said to me, Why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and the beast. Now there's that word mystery again. It came up in uh, verse 5. And now here it is again. I'll explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up from the abyss and go to destruction. Those who live on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast that was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind that has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is. The other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain for only a little while. 
The beast that was and is not is itself an eighth king, but it belongs to the seven and is going to destruction. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they will receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war against the lamb, but the lamb will conquer them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. Those with him are called, chosen, and faithful. We'll stop there. I, I hated going through this chapter this week because I don't like math. My son loves math, but I don't like math. And then when I got to algebra, Bob, and they combine uh, letters and numbers, that should be like illegal. You know, I didn't like that at all. And then when I had to take advanced math and they said, oh, today we have word problems. Well, that just made me really confused. So, so when I started reading this uh, all last week and this week, and I'm going, okay, it's a word problem with all these numbers. And it's kind of frustrating. So I really wrestled with this, and I will say that uh, up front. Um, here in the rest of this chapter, we see the beast is described and identified. I really do believe it's the same beast that is in Revelation 13. And then we look at the seven heads and ten horns. That's going to be fun. And then the waters and finally the woman at the end. So let's kind of go through this a little bit. Uh, the beast is described and identified there in verse 7 and 8. Now notice this beast um, that is carrying this woman. Seven heads, ten horns. And, and the emphasis on this beast, it's mentioned in verse 8 and again in verse, well, twice in verse 8. Uh, notice how repetitive it is. We'll, we'll re read verse 8 again. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up from the abyss and go to destruction. Okay, notice that pattern there. Okay, that three-fold pattern. Was, is not, is about to come up and go to destruction. Those who live on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will be astonished when they see the beast that, and here it is, was and is not and is to come. Now, remember the beast is going to be the Antichrist, and this beast imitates Christ. And remember when we read about Christ in chapter 1 and we read about God, uh, he... He, he is, He was, and He is to come. And uh, here is the beast, and He's an imitator. He's a counterfeit who was, is not, is to come. Similar pattern there, okay? And uh, it's mentioned twice there in the same verse, verse 8. And that doesn't fool believers, but for those who aren't saved, whose names are not written in the book of life, they are astonished when they see this beast that was, that is not, and is to come. But when he comes, he's going to come from the abyss and he will go to destruction. And this is something significant because then it goes on and say this calls for a mind that has wisdom. Now, the only other time we've read that connotation is a few chapters ago, remember the mark of the beast, and his mark is 666, this calls for wisdom, let the reader understand. Okay, and now we have another one of those dis disclaimers right here. Uh, I like what Alan Johnson uh, said about this. He said, much difficulty in interpreting this section has resulted from incorrectly applying John's words 
either to Roman emperor succession, like the seven heads, to the Nero Redivius myth, uh, once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss. Now, the Nero Redivius myth, and I don't know if I'm saying that right or not, but there was a belief that when Nero died, one of the emperors that, that persecuted a lot of Christians, there was a popular myth out there that one day he would come back from the dead. Okay? And so there are um, scholars out there that, um, that point to that to explain this. Um, but uh, this guy says no. He says uh, some people incorrectly apply John's words either to all the emperors uh, being the seven heads or to the Nero Redivius myth to, to say that is what the once was, now is not, will come up out of the abyss means, or to its succession of world empires. None of these views is satisf satisfactory. Um, he says John's description is theological, not political. And after much head-scratching, I would have to agree. When you look at this uh, uh, seven heads, ten horns, a lot of people say, well, that's the emperors, and they start counting off. Well, if you go and you look all that up, where do you start? Who's number six? Who's number seven? And what about those guys? There was one year where an emperor died, and they had like three different emperors in one year. Do you count those? Do you not count those? It gets a little fuzzy, fuzzy math. You remember that saying? It gets a little fuzzy math. And then some say, well, it's not the emperors, it's the, the, the kingdoms. Remember the statue of, in Daniel's day, and he interpreted the different kingdoms that were coming. Well, one of those, I believe, was the Greeks, but I don't have any recollection of the Greeks persecuting uh, Israel, the Old Testament people of God. And so, even though I want it to fit, I just don't see the consistency there when you try to, you know, put all that and zip it all up and align it. I just don't see that. So he says John's description is theological, not political. He describes a reality behind earth's kingdoms, not the, uh, not the uh, manifestations of history. And when this is seen to be the case, it's unnecessary to revert to source theories or to other theories and attempt to relate John's language to other events. And I would agree. And so that is that. This beast is the Antichrist. He, he was. He is not. And he's about to come. Now, you're going to see that pattern again. When we get to Revelation 20, and you see that Satan is bound for a thousand years, you see the same pattern there that you see here. And what I mean by that, okay? Well, at the fall of man, then, you know, sin entered in, and now the devil is the prince of the power of the air. The devil rules this world because man sinned against God, and there's the devil, okay? He tempted Adam and Eve. He succeeded in his mission. He was. But then when Christ came, Christ died on the cross, and in dying on the cross and rising from the dead, what did He do? He defeated. Remember that prophecy? The, the, the heel on the head? He defeated Satan. Okay, He, he uh, crushed his head, you might say. And so at that point, when you look at this theologically, the devil was... And then he is not, meaning that he's been defeated by Christ, okay? 
But then we know in the future he's going to be allowed to deceive the nations. And as soon as he's allowed to do that, what's he going to do? He's going to deceive the nations. And it says, and is about to come from the abyss. Okay? And when he comes, he's going to wow, he's going to woo, he's going to astonish the rest of the world because he was, he is not, and he comes. But when he comes, it's just for a short time. And then, according to verse 8, he will go to destruction. And this calls for a mind that has wisdom. Uh, so it's very, very interesting there. Let me uh, read a st- extended quote. I hope this helps. He says, The beast is the monster from the abyss, the satanic incarnation of idolatrous power described in Revelation 13, mentioned earlier than that in, ver- in chapter 11, verse 7, and whose destruction is seen in uh, chapter 19. John is told that the beast once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss. This seems clearly to be a paraphrase of the idea in chapter 13 of the wounded beast who was healed. Uh, If you go back to um, Revelation 13, look in verse 3. It says that one of its heads appeared to be fatally wounded, but its fatal wound was healed. And then you go down to verse 14, and it says... Uh, This beast deceives those who live on the earth because of the signs that it's permitted to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who live on the earth to make an image of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And so that that squares up. Um, The play here on the tenses, was, is not, will come, refers to a three-stage history of the beast that requires a mind with wisdom to understand its mystery. That John's beast is not refers to his defeat by the Lamb of God on Calvary and to those who worship only the Father and the Son, all other gods, little g that is, gods, are nothing or non-existence. Uh, Satan once had unchallenged power over the earth. Now he's, uh, now he's defeated because of the cross and yet he's given a little time to oppose God and his people before his final sentencing to destruction. And so there you go. And then you get to verse 9, where it says the seven heads or seven mountains on which the woman is seated, and there are also seven kings. Now, we're not used to seeing that, are we? I mean, here is a, a, a symbol, if you will, heads, and we're told that they represent two things. They represent mountains, and they represent kings. That just makes it really confusing, doesn't it? It does mean... Uh, There are different interpretations here. Uh, I won't bore you. I'll mention them, but uh, I I read so much on it, it made my head spin. But many, many um, scholars, they look at this and they go back to Daniel and they try to link it up and they go, well, these, it says kings, who are the kings? And they try to name the kings and they assume that it's the Roman emperors. And like I said, you, you know, who was the first one? Uh, I think it was Julius. And then you start counting down. And the problem with that is you get to a point to where when you get to the sixth or seventh emperor, you got to say, does that square with the date that we believe John, the apostle, wrote the book of Revelation? It just gets fuzzy. It gets hairy. Uh, I think it's kind of forcing a square peg in a round hole. I don't think it quite fits. And then again, you look at the statue in Daniel with the, uh, the kingdoms. And I believe one of those kingdoms that represented the statue is the, the Greeks. 
and I don't know of any time that they, per se, nothing comes to mind. I mean, I can think of Egypt and Babylon and, and Rome, and um, I know there's some others that did uh, persecute Israel in the Old Testament, uh, or Roman in the New Testament, but I just can't think of any in Greek. It doesn't come to mind. Then you've got the Nero, Reduvius Smith, where some believe that either Nero or someone like Nero is going to come back from the dead at some point in the future. Anyway, my conclusion with all those theories of interpretation is I'm just not satisfied. I, I like what Alan Johnson said. He said, any Roman soldier who knew Greek could figure out that the seven hills referred to Rome. Rome was known as a city with seven hills. But whenever divine wisdom is called for, in verse 9, this calls for a mind that has wisdom. Whenever divine wisdom is called for, he says, the description requires theological and symbolic discernment, not mere geographical or numerical insight. And I would agree with that. You know, it's kind of like when Peter asked Jesus, how many times do I forgive my brother? And Jesus said 70 times 7. Was he really talking about math? Did he want us to say, okay, my friend over here has got an account, 490 credits. I'll forgive him 490 times. And after that, no. You know, I don't, I don't think we should look at it that way. And so, at any rate, I want to introduce a, a, a thought that Alan Johnson, the same guy that, uh, that I agree with, that said this. Here's what he says. He says, each of the series of sevens, and if you read Revelation, you know that the, the number of seven is everywhere, okay? Each of the series of sevens in the book, with the exception of the seven churches, okay, in the beginning, they follow a pattern of the seventh in the series becoming the first of a new series. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, go back to the uh, trumpets. Remember, you, well, first of all, you had the seven uh, seals, then you had the seven trumpets. And so the, uh, the seventh seal, when he opened the seventh seal in chapter 8, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Okay? And then he saw seven angels standing in the presence of God with seven trumpets given to them. Okay? So the seventh one started something new. Then you get to the seven trumpets. And when you get to the seven trumpets... You read the seventh trumpet, and there's loud voices in heaven, and the kingdom of the world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He'll reign forever and ever. And, you know, they began to worship God and give Him praise. And then the temple of God in heaven was open, and all these things happened. And, and, and it goes on. And just like the, uh, the uh, seventh bowl... Um, so anyway, here's what he says. He says that um, the uh, pattern of the seventh in the series becomes the first of a new series. Thus, seven to eight equals one. Uh, the eighth was the day of the Messiah, the day of the new age, the sign of the victory over the forces of evil. But does this provide a key to interpret the symbolism? Um, and that's an interesting question. Uh, see, the eighth day was the day of the Messiah. Okay, seven days in a week, right? And then on the first day of the week, which would be Sunday, Christ rose from the dead, and that would be the eighth day. I know it would be the first day, but you start it over, it would be the eighth day. And so that's the way he's looking at it. Of the three stages of the beast, was, is not, will come, only the last is related to his coming up out of the abyss. And these words appear to be equivalent 
to the beast being healed of a wound that's mentioned in Revelation 13 that we looked at a little bit ago. While on one, while on one hand, Christ has killed the beast by his death, and for believers, he is not. That means he has no power over us. Yet on the other hand, this beast still has life. He is. And will one day attempt a final battle against the lamb and his followers. In other words, he will come. And he must remain a little while. In order to recruit as many as possible for his side of the war, the beast will imitate the resurrection of Christ. He is an eighth king. Look there in verse 11. The beast that was and is not is itself an eighth king, but it belongs to the seven and is going to destruction. I thought that was very significant there. So... He's going to be an imitator. He's an eighth king. He will give the appearance that he's alive and in control of the world. But John quickly adds, for the pastoral comfort of God's people, that the beast belongs to the seven. Okay, qualitatively, not numerically, uh, as if he was a former king that revived. He is in reality uh, not a new beginning of life, but a part of the seven-headed monster that has already been slain by Christ, and therefore he will go to destruction. And while this imagery may seem to us to be unnecessary, I agree, it reveals the true mystery of the beast in a fashion that exposes the dynamics of satanic deception so that every Christian may be forearmed. And so if I had to try to explain this, and I want you to come away with one thing, that's my one thing. I know it doesn't satisfy all the curiosities and all the details. Uh, there's some things I just go, I, I don't understand this. It is a difficult book. But I love the call here in verse 9. This calls for wisdom. Okay, these heads are mountains. They're kings. Five have fallen. One is. The other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain for only a little while. And the beast that was, verse 11, and is not, is itself an eighth king. Now, how did we jump from seven to eight? Well, he does. But the eighth belongs to the seven, and he's going to destruction, okay? And that's what he says. And then the ten horns you saw in verse 12 are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they will receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. Now, one hour is, to me, going back to verse 10, a little while. Okay, it ain't long, right? One hour is just a little while. And these have one purpose, verse 13. They give their power and authority to the beast. And these will make war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will conquer them because He's Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called, chosen, and faithful. So I know I left a lot unsaid, but don't get lost in the trees, look at the big picture of the forest. Okay, God's in control. He's telling us that this beast will come, that he is the Antichrist. He was. He is not because he's been defeated already at the cross, but he's about to come from the abyss. Okay, and he's going to astonish the world. He's going to deceive the world. He's going to mislead the world. He's going to persecute God's people but only for a little while, and ultimately he will go to destruction. That's good to know, isn't it? And uh, that's exactly what we were told. And then we have the woman and the waters. Again, look in verse uh, 15. John said, He also said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute was seated are people, multitudes, 
nations and languages. And, and there's about seven times, actually, I think. Uh, I think there's seven times. But there's a few times, six, seven times in Revelation where you have this fourfold pattern when it talks about people. And the terms vary a little bit each time. And this is the last time it's mentioned. It says that the, the water represents people, multitudes, nations, and languages. See that fourfold pattern referring to people. It, it refers to the universal, the, the, the whole world. And the ten horns you saw... And the beast will hate the prostitute. Now, you didn't see that coming, did you? Here is this prostitute sitting uh, on the beast, and apparently they're working together. But it comes a point to where the beast no longer needs her, and so he turns on her. And so they will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with Fire, for God has put it into their hearts to carry out His plan by having one purpose and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman you saw is the great city that has royal power over the kings of the earth. Um, the influence of the satanic system of Babylon is universal, embraces all people, thus the fourfold saying, people, multitude, nations, and languages. Uh, the woman and the great city are, are one, according to that, uh, that last verse there. Yet this city is not a historical city. It's a great city. It's the mother city. It's the archetype of all uh, evil opposed to God throughout history. Her kingdom holds sway over the earth. John's concept of the city in Revelation uh, focuses on two cities, the city of God, the New Jerusalem, the bride to the Lamb, and the city of Satan, Babylon the Great. One thing I see here, you may have heard this said before, but I think it's absolutely true, that evil contains uh, its own seeds of self-destruction. Evil is just destructive by nature, and, and evil contains its own seeds of self-destruction. And here you see the uh, prostitute and the beast working together until the beast no longer needs the prostitute and then he tries to destroy her. And so Revelation 17, according to William Hendrickson, is a lesson for all of us. It reveals the course of worldly individuals. First, people become infatuated with the pleasures and treasures of the world. And then they harden themselves against God. And then once they're hardened, Finally, when it's too late, they experience a revulsion of feeling and they're punished by the results of their own foolishness. And I thought that was very interesting. Let's sort of bring this home for a little bit. Uh, you feel like you're looking at a novel that you haven't read and you've walked halfway into a movie and you're seeing a bunch of gory scenes and you're like, what is this all about? And I completely understand that. So how does this relate to you and I today? Well, like I said, if you back up from chapter 17 and you look at where we are in the book and the rest of the book, you've got two cities. You've got Babylon the Great that's portrayed as a harlot, a whore, a prostitute. And then you've got the New Jerusalem, which is the bride of the Lamb. And it's the ultimate destiny of everyone who ever lives. They'll either follow the Lord or they'll follow the beast. Okay, Everyone has to make a choice. And I'm reminded of what Paul the Apostle told the church at Corinth. In 2 Corinthians 11, listen to what Paul the Apostle told the church in Corinth. He said, For I am jealous for you, 
with a godly jealousy because I promised you in marriage to one husband to present a pure virgin to Christ. But I fear that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your minds may be seduced from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if a person comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we did not preach to you, or, or you receive a different spirit which you had not received, or a different gospel which you had not accepted, you put up with it splendidly. So Paul is saying to the church at Corinth, listen, I promised you in marriage to one husband, his name is Jesus, you are uh, to be pure and you are to be the bride of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You're, you're to be that bride to Christ. And so remain pure. Remain devoted. Don't be deceived. Don't let the devil seduce your mind and, and allow you to stray away from a devoted, faithful commitment to Christ. And so with that said tonight, I want to encourage you to remain devoted and faithful to Christ. We don't have to fear the future because He's already told us what's going to happen. I do believe it's going to go from bad to worse, but I think it's all good and it's all God in the end. And even though we know that someday uh, this manifest evil will happen, and I'm sure then we'll go off. So that's how it goes down. So that's who the places are. That's the, that's the places and the faces. That's, that's how all this shakes out. But please understand, it calls for a mind that has wisdom. You know the story. When you read the beginning of the book, you know how it began. When you read the ending of the book, you know how it ends. You know the story. This beast who was and is not right now will one day come back, but only for a short while. And then guess what? He's going to be destroyed. He's going to be judged. Don't lose sight of that. Uh, there's a lot I don't know, but I know that. And that's really all that matters. Remember the blind man that was healed by Jesus and the Pharisees questioned him? Now tell us again, what did he do? Now how did he do it? And finally he's like, are y'all wanting to be his disciples too? And boy, they really gave it to him. And then he basically looked at him and he said, look, all I know is I was blind, but now I see. And that's all that matters. And all you need to know about this is despite this beast that one day will come, he is defeated. He is going to ultimately be destroyed. Now, when he comes back, he's going to do a lot of damage. Make no mistake, he's going to do a lot of damage. He's going to make war against the Lamb. And he's going to uh, persecute a lot of, of, of Christians. But we have nothing to be afraid of. We know that uh, the Lord has won the battle, and we know that he ultimately will be victorious because he is King of kings and Lord of lords. The other thing I want you to realize, and I mentioned this when we started Revelation, particularly in chapters 2 and 3 when we looked at what the Word of God is to the churches, you know, uh, to, hear, to him who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit of God says to the churches. That was mentioned 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 times to each of the seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. I think the world primarily has two tactics, okay? The world has two tactics that they use all the time. It's their playbook for not only attacking followers of Christ, 
uh, but you know, trying to control us. One is seduction, and the other one is persecution. Seduction is personified by the prostitute. She portrays herself in the best light possible. But when you look at what she's drunk on, and you see all the abominations, you'll realize that she's drunk on the blood of the saints. The world wants to seduce us so that it can steal, kill, and ultimately destroy. Remember, we've got three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the devil works with the world and through the world, and he's come like a thief to steal, kill, and destroy. So he uses the world, and he wants us to become worldly. He wants us to struggle with worldliness, just like Lot did when he went down to Egypt with Uncle Abraham. And his eyes got full of the glitz and glamour of the world. And as soon as he could part with his beloved uncle, he pitched his tent toward Sodom. And so you and I need to realize that worldliness is always trying to woo us and seduce us to stray in our simple, pure, devoted walk to Christ. That is one way the sword cuts. The other way the sword cuts, the other way, the other tactic of the world against Christians today is persecution. If they cannot seduce us, if they cannot control us, if they cannot stop us, then the only other option is persecution. Okay? And whenever we encounter persecution, remember what Jesus said. You know, He says, if the world hates you, just remember something. It hated me first. That's what Jesus said in John 15. And he even said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake, for righteousness' sake. And so, as we live in a fallen, sinful world, we need to be aware of the way it really works. And I think so many times we're so used to the facade of civilization that we just kind of smile, nod our head, and we go on our way. But we don't realize sometimes that this is a fallen world and we're in a spiritual battle, okay? And as we go through this spiritual battle, on one hand we're seduced, on the other hand we're persecuted. But please remain faithful and devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ because He is the one that we're living for. He's the one that we are longing for. And one of these days... He will come, and I look forward to that. I won't, I won't say any more about that because we've got to get to chapters 19 and 20 and 21. That's when it gets really, really good. Well, let's pray. Father, we come before you tonight. Lord, there's so many images, so much information you've given us in your word tonight. But Lord, help us to realize that this beast that was, that is not, and that is coming again from the abyss, will ultimately be destroyed. And Lord, we know that you are the true king, that you are the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And Lord, we praise you for that and we thank you for that. And Lord, we pray that when you return, that we might be found faithful, that we love you and we long for your appearing. Lord, be with us now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church. To learn more about the church, find out meeting times, or learn how to contact the pastor, please visit phbcsummerset.com.